Return to the Word is made possible by faithful supporters like you. Find out more at returntotheword.com. Welcome to another edition of Return to the Word Radio with Bible teacher Mark Fontecchio. Advancing the message of God's amazing grace through the teaching of God's Word. And now with today's message, here is our teacher. Jesus had fed the 5,000. Mark 6, 46 records, And taking leave of them, he went away to the mountain to pray. Jesus had sent the disciples away. He wanted them away from the crowd. We begin again with verse 16 of John chapter 6. Now when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into the boat, and went over the sea toward Capernaum. And it was already dark, and Jesus had not come to them. Then the sea arose because a great wind was blowing. So when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near the boat, and they were afraid. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. Then they willingly received him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land where they were going. On the following day, when the people who were standing on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other boat there, except that one which his disciples had entered, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but his disciples had gone away alone. However, other boats came from Tiberias, near the place where they ate bread after the Lord had given thanks. When the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they also got into boats and came to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal on him. Then they said to him, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. A 12-year-old boy back in the 1800s lived far out in the country, and he had never seen a circus. And one day a poster went up at his school announcing that a traveling circus was coming to the town that was closest to them. He ran home to tell his father and quickly asked him if he could go. Well, this family was poor, but the father could tell that this was something that was important to this young man. So the father told his son, if you do your Saturday chores ahead of time, I'll see to it that you have the money to go. Come Saturday morning, those chores were done. And the little boy stood by the breakfast table, dressed in some of his best clothes. His father reached down into the pocket of his overalls and pulled out a dollar bill. This was the most amount of money that this little boy had possessed at one time in all his life. His father warned him to be careful and then sent him on his way to town. This young boy was beyond excited. And as he got closer to the outer edge of town, he noticed people lining the streets and he worked his way through the crowd until he could see what was happening. Sure enough, it was a circus parade making its way down the street. This was the greatest thing this boy had seen. Caged animals, bands playing music, little people performing acrobatics. And finally, after everything had passed by, the circus clown came 
with big floppy shoes, baggy pants, and a bright painted face. As the clown passed by, the little boy reached into his pocket and took out that precious dollar bill, handing the money to the clown. Thinking he had seen the circus when he had only seen the parade, the little boy turned around and went home. In the sixth chapter of John, the scene was very much like that of a circus. People were excited for a lot of reasons. A great crowd of people had gathered. They had seen Jesus time after time heal the sick. The Lord Jesus had just provided a meal for thousands of people. The people were hungry. There was a legitimate need for food, and the Lord provided. But here was the problem. Thousands of Hebrew people had just witnessed a powerful work of God, a miracle, but most of them sat there completely ignorant of what this meant. Most of them never came to faith in Jesus as the Messiah of Israel. Like the young boy standing on the side of the road, the men and women of Israel didn't understand that the miracles, this was all something that came before the main event, the redemptive work of Jesus Christ upon the cross. And I would dare to say that this is the helpless tragedy of men of every age, to miss the significance, to miss the very reason that the Lord Jesus even came. This is the direction we are headed in our text. But first, we start out with the disciples caught in the storm. Let's look to our text again, starting with verse 16. Now when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into the boat, and went over the sea toward Capernaum. And it was already dark, and Jesus had not come to them. Then the sea arose because a great wind was blowing. Matthew 14 fills in some of the details. Matthew 14 records, Immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he sent the multitudes away. And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. Now when evening came, he was alone there. According to Matthew 14, the disciples had to be told by Christ to leave him there on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Why would he do that? To be alone to pray, yes, but more. Do not downplay the sovereignty of Jesus. The Lord knew exactly what was going to happen. Christ knew what his reaction would be. And Christ knew the greater purpose that this would have. The disciples headed down to the small wooden ship and headed out across the lake in the direction of Capernaum. Some of the disciples were fishermen. This would have been a quick and easy trip to the other side of the lake. It was already dark. And John reminds us that Jesus was not with them. Listen to Mark chapter 6, referring to Jesus. Then he saw them straining at rowing, for the wind was against them. They were rowing, they were struggling, they were on the eastern shore, headed west to northwest, and the wind was against them. The Sea of Galilee is about 600 feet below sea level. Most of the time, the wind comes from the west, and here is what happens. That wind could come down those steep hills in an instant, stirring up the water. It's not that big of a lake only about 13 miles long and 7 miles wide, but it sits in a bowl at the base of some smaller mountains. To the east, the Golan Heights rise a few thousand feet above the lake. To the west, the Galilean hill country is roughly 2,000 feet above the shore. Only 30 miles or so to the west is the Mediterranean Sea. The weather fronts come ashore with the wind blowing across the valleys of central Galilee and come roaring into the lake with little or no warning because of the surrounding hills and the mountains. The storms on the Sea of Galilee are unpredictable and they are dangerous. And Matthew tells us it was now the fourth watch. These were the wee hours of the night between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. No doubt 
they were struggling to stay afloat. Jesus knew this storm would come, and he is the one that sent his disciples to cross the lake. Because, listen, he knew the greater danger of not teaching these men of the importance of depending on him. It would have been altogether too easy for the disciples to have gotten caught up in the excitement of the crowd. Learn the lesson. Sometimes the Lord has to allow the storms to bring balance to our lives, to keep us from pride, to keep us from falling. Mark 6 adds the detail that even the disciples did not understand the feeding of the crowd with the loaves of bread. The feeding of the 5,000 was the lesson to trust, but the storm on the Sea of Galilee, this was the test at the end of the lesson. Now let's move forward in the text with verses 19 and 20. I love these two verses. So when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near the boat, and they were afraid. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. About three or four miles into this, they were in the middle of the lake, They had a couple of more miles to go. And the disciples saw Jesus approaching. They saw Jesus walking on the sea. John tells us that the disciples were afraid. Listen to Mark 6. And when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were troubled. The disciples, they thought they were seeing a ghost or a spirit. But notice how the Lord responded. It is I, do not be afraid. In the midst of the storm, in the midst of their efforts to make some headway on the water, Jesus came walking calmly on the water. The Lord had seen them. Mark 6 teaches us that the Lord had actually been watching them. His heart went out to them, and he did not abandon them. He knew about the storm. He could have prevented the storm from even hitting. He was the one who had told the disciples to leave by boat, but he wanted his disciples to learn the lesson that he was with them. That no matter what the storms of life are, no matter how high the waves, no matter how serious the situation can be, the message is stay on task, continue to trust, count on him, look to him. Isaiah made mention of this. Isaiah 26, verse 3. Listen to what he said. He was referring to God. You will keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you, because he trusts in you. You can see the pattern of men. We look at the problem instead of the solution. Instead of being preoccupied with how bad our situation is, we need to recognize when Jesus comes to help us in time of need. Take a close look at verse 21. Then they willingly received him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land where they were going. The first part of the verse, it's simple enough. They saw the Lord Jesus walking on the water in the middle of the storm. Once they recognized it was him and not a spirit or a ghost, they willingly received him into the boat. But read the second part of the verse very carefully. And immediately the boat was at the land where they were going. It's subtle. It's something a lot of people try to deny or explain away. But this was another miracle. Some would say that they are traveling close to shore or that they were close to where they were going so that this just means it didn't take them long to finish their journey. But where were they? According to the word of God itself, where were they? Mark 6 records that they were in the middle of the lake. They were roughly three miles off of shore. And then now, immediately, the boat was at land. This is not just saying they reached land quickly. This is testifying immediately the Lord Jesus made them reach their destination, demonstrating the Lord's power and authority over both time and distance. Don't try to explain it, but instead understand that it was a clear act of God. 
The disciples struggled against the wind, but God the Son instantly took them the rest of the way. Turn over to Psalm 107. This is another beautiful, beautiful section of Scripture. And this is one of those moments where we see how unified the Word of God is. Those who go down to the sea in ships, who do business on great waters, they see the works of the Lord and His wonders in the deep. For He commands and raises the stormy wind, which lifts up the waves of the sea. They mount up to the heavens. They go down again to the depths. Their soul melts because of trouble. They reel to and fro and stagger like a drunken man and are at their wit's end. Then they cry out to the Lord in their trouble and he brings them out of their distresses. He calms the storm so that its waves are still and don't miss verse 30. Then they are glad because they are quiet so he guides them to their desired haven. Ask yourself why in John 6 Jesus walked on the water and delivered their boat safely to shore. He did these things to make it unmistakably clear that he is God. He has the power, authority, and control over the sea. But there is more. On your way back to the Gospel of John, stop off at the Gospel of Matthew, heading to Matthew 14. This is another one of those places where you need to look at more than one Gospel record to get the full account, the full picture of what happened. Keeping in mind that this is the same event as that of John 6, pick up the text in Matthew 14 with verse 26. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It is a ghost, and they cried out with fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Be of good cheer, it is I, do not be afraid. And notice this next part. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. So he said, Come. And when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw that the wind was boisterous, he was afraid and beginning to sink, he cried out saying, Lord, save me. And is there ever a lesson in this? Peter was living by sight and not by faith. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him and said to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they had gotten into the boat, the wind ceased. Then those who were in the boat came and worshiped him saying, Truly you are the Son of God. Jesus knew that the crowds of people were gathering for all the wrong reasons. But Jesus wanted to make sure that his disciples understood his power, understanding his true identity. Recognize that there was more than just one miracle taking place. The Lord was walking on the water. Peter was walking on the water. The Lord calmed the storm, and immediately the boat was at land. The only legitimate conclusion for the disciples was that they worshiped the Lord and said, Truly, you are the Son of God. So back now in the Gospel of John, pick up our text with verse 22. On the following day, when the people who were standing on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other boat there, except that one which his disciples had entered, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but his disciples had gone away alone. However, other boats came from Tiberias, near the place where they ate bread after the Lord had given thanks. When the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they also got into boats and came to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. According to verse 22, it is now the next day. Verse 59 is going to tell us that he taught these things in the synagogue in Capernaum. It might have been the Sabbath. These three verses are a little bit wordy, but the point is simple. 
the crowd, still on the eastern shore of the lake where the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 had taken place, they were still on the eastern shore. They recognized that only one boat had brought Jesus and his disciples to the eastern shore. But now that one boat had left without Jesus, so where was he? Where did he go? Obviously, they were not thinking that the Lord just crossed the lake by walking on the water. In verse 23, it teaches us that meanwhile, other boats from Tiberias had come to the eastern shore. But when the people saw that Jesus was not there, when the people saw that his disciples were not there, the people got in the boats and headed out across the lake, landing at Capernaum, still searching for Jesus. A circus-like atmosphere. Remember, we said before that at this time, Capernaum was where Jesus was staying. And it would seem that the crowd knew this. Follow along in the next few verses, starting in verse 25. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. When they found Jesus, notice they addressed him as Rabbi. They acknowledged that he was a teacher, even though they were about to dispute his teaching. The first reaction of the crowd was not just, when did he get there? But the wording carries the idea of, when did you get here and how did you get here? How did you get across the water? Notice with verse 26, Jesus didn't even answer their question. Just as he did with Nicodemus, he answered a question that they didn't ask. The Lord knew why the people were seeking him. He knew their hearts. And he knew every time these people saw miracles, this became their focus, meaning it would have hurt them more than it would have helped them if he told the people that he had walked on the water, calmed the storm, and caused the boat to immediately arrive at the other side of the sea. He wanted them to develop faith in him as the Messiah. Politics was not his mission. Miracles were not even his mission. There is a warning here that miracles without faith equals danger. It leads to all sorts of confusion about God. Only the disciples of Christ were allowed to witness his power over the storm. Instead of answering their question, he turns it around and questions their motives in looking for him. What was the real problem? Let's go back in the passage. Go back to verse 2. Take another look at verse 2 in John 6. Then a great multitude followed him because they saw his signs which he performed on those who were diseased. The people followed him because of the signs. He healed the sick. Skip down to verses 14 and 15. This is right after he had just fed the crowd, the feeding of the 5,000. Verse 14, Then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, This is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself, alone. Then go back to our text. Let's read verse 26 again. Take a closer look at this. Jesus answered them and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Most assuredly, literally, amen, amen. The Lord was calling attention to his words. The signs were intended to prove insight into who Jesus is, the Messiah. The signs were not the problem. The problem came when the people failed to recognize the meaning of the signs. At a superficial level, the signs meant that Jesus had remarkable powers. Jesus had fed the people. You have to remember, the Roman government had a way to keep the people happy. Bread and circuses. Give them food and entertainment, and the people will be happy. The Roman government actually set aside 93 days 
each year for public games at the expense of the Roman government. They figured it was cheaper to entertain the crowds than it was to fight them or put them in jail. Let the church stand warned that Jesus condemned the mindset of following Christ for selfish gain, of following Christ for what you can get out of him. This type of attitude has a low view of Jesus Christ. God the Son was standing before them and he had come with a different purpose. Notice the warning of verse 27. Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you because God the Father has set his seal on him. By this point in the text, we are in the synagogue in Capernaum, a major center for Jewish learning. And this type of back and forth was common between the men and the one teaching. Don't labor for the food which perishes. Jesus rebuked their materialistic idea of the kingdom of God. Think of the woman at the well back in chapter 4. She wanted an endless supply of water just so she wouldn't have to keep going back to the well. Now it was food. Jesus was trying to get people to have their thoughts rise a little higher than just their physical needs. It's a lot like the lost today that come to the doors of the church pretending to be interested in the Christian faith just so they can get help with their heat bill, their groceries, or their rent. I would rather have these people be honest and tell you they are not interested in Jesus Christ or life in him and ask if we could help them with their physical need. Could we help them with food, clothing, or shelter? Because then at least you would know where you stand. At least it would end the lies. Nothing different back then. Men pretending to have a real interest in Christ. But he knew then, and he knows today, Jesus knows the heart of every man. So put verse 27 into context. Back and forth, the people had gone. They went around the lake. They went across the lake just to follow the desire to watch Jesus perform miracles for the crowd. If they simply wanted bread, they should have gone and worked for it. They were not wrong to be hungry. They were not wrong for eating the meal the Lord had provided, but they were wrong for wanting the Lord to serve them. They were wrong for wanting the Lord to follow their plans, their efforts, their time, their labor should have been put into the food which endures to everlasting life. This most certainly does not mean that we earn our salvation. Christ even said here, this is something the Son of Man gives, but it does mean a direct challenge to every one of us that our relationship with God should be even more important to us than food. Do you hunger for God more than you crave the things of the world? The Son of Man gives life because the Father has set his seal on him. The Lord Jesus is the author of life. If these men and women were to labor for the food that endures unto eternal life, then they needed to realize that it is the Son alone who can give it. Life is a gift. The Son of Man is the one on whom the Father has set his seal. A seal guaranteed something was authentic. The idea here is that God the Father has certified that his Son is the only one who can provide this food. This is what he came for, to seek and to save that which was lost. I tend to think that the reference of God the Father setting his seal on his Son is another reference to the baptism of Christ. When the father testified, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. The nation of Israel had been down this road before. Make your way over to Deuteronomy 8. The words of Jesus echoed the words of Moses. And if you go back to our studies about the pre-incarnate Christ, you remember that Jesus was there with Moses and the nation of Israel. Deuteronomy 8, pick it up with verse 2. 
And you shall remember that the Lord your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness. Notice, to humble you and test you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. Not that God didn't know their hearts, but God was willing to let it all play out so that the people could see the depravity of their own hearts. Verse 3, so he humbled you, allowed you to hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. Why did God's people wander the desert? Because of a lack of trust because of a lack of faith. This was the covenant people of God, and yet they cowered away from the promised land because what they saw ahead of them scared them, and the giants in the land just seemed to be like too much for them. And so they spent 40 more years in the wilderness with God providing every step of the way and the people having to learn all over again that life doesn't come from bread, life comes from God. Back in John, Jesus was again teaching the people not to focus merely on the nourishment that feeds the body while neglecting the nourishment that feeds the soul. Notice how the people misunderstood him, starting in verse 28. Then they said to him, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. Mankind has this craving to do something to earn their salvation, and this is where the Jews took it. They responded by wanting to serve God, not with faith, but with works, that we may work the works of God. This was them wanting to know what are the works that God requires? What can we do to earn our salvation? This is the arrogance of man, thinking that by works we can obtain enough righteousness to be reconciled to a holy God. For the Jews, eternal life was just a matter of finding that right combination of works that God requires. But Jesus, directed them to the gift of God that could be obtained by faith in him. The lost want salvation on their terms, not God's. This is the question the religions ask. What shall we do that we might work the works of God? Islam answers the question by setting apart the month of Ramadan for that purpose. The Church of Rome answers the question by teaching the people to do penance, earn indulgences, and to recite the words of the Mass of Christ. And the Jewish rabbis taught, keep the law according to the tradition of the elders. Notice again the beautiful response from the Lord. This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he sent. The work of God, what God requires of men is faith in his son, to believe in the one that God the Father has sent. Jesus has been sent from the courts of heaven by God the Father so that we might be saved by him. Trust in his son, the savior of men. Before we close, allow me to tell you about a real person named Mabel, written about by Tom Schmidt. Let me tell it to you through his words. The state-run convalescent hospital is not a pleasant place. It is large, understaffed, and overfilled with senile and helpless and lonely people who are waiting to die. On the brightest of days, it seems dark inside and it smells of sickness and stale urine. I went there once or twice a week for four years, but I never wanted to go there, and I always left with a sense of relief. It's not the kind of place one gets used to. On this particular day, I was walking in a hallway that I had not visited before. 
looking in vain for a few who are alive enough to receive a flower and a few words of encouragement. This hallway seemed to contain some of the worst cases, strapped onto carts or into wheelchairs and looking completely helpless. As I neared the end of this hallway, I saw an old woman strapped up in a wheelchair. Her face was an absolute whore. The empty stare and white pupils of her eyes told me that she was blind. The large hearing aid over one ear told me that she was almost deaf. One side of her face was being eaten by cancer. There was a discolored and running sore covering part of one cheek, and it had pushed her nose to one side, dropped one eye, and distorted her jaw so that what should have been the corner of her mouth was the bottom of her mouth. As a consequence, she drooled constantly. I was told later that when new nurses arrived, the supervisors would send them to feed this woman, thinking that if they could stand this sight, they could stand anything in the building. I also learned that this woman was 89 years old and that she had been here bedridden, blind, and nearly deaf and alone for 25 years. This was Mabel. I don't know why I spoke to her. She looked less likely to respond than most of the people I saw in that hallway. But I put a flower in her hand and said, here is a flower for you, happy Mother's Day. She held the flower up to her face and tried to smell it. And then she spoke. And much to my surprise, her words, even though they were somewhat garbled because of her deformity, they were obviously produced by a clear mind. She said, thank you. It's lovely. But can I give it to someone else? I can't see it, you know. I'm blind. I said, of course, and I pushed her in her chair back down the hallway to a place where I thought I could find some alert patients. I found one, and I stopped the chair. Mabel held out the flower and said, here, this is from Jesus. That was when it began to dawn on me that this was not an ordinary human being. Later, I wheeled her back to her room and learned more about her history. She had grown up on a small farm that she managed with only her mother, until her mother died. Then she ran the farm alone until 1950 when her blindness and sickness sent her to the convalescent hospital. For 25 years, she got weaker and sicker with constant headaches, backaches and stomach aches, and then the cancer came too. Her three roommates were all human vegetables who screamed occasionally but never talked. They often soiled their bedclothes and because the hospital was understaffed. The stench was often overpowering. Mabel and I became friends over the next few weeks, and I went to see her once or twice a week for the next three years. Her first words to me were usually an offer of hard candy from a tissue box near her bed. Some days I would read to her from the Bible, and often when I would pause, she would continue reciting the passage from memory, word for word. On other days, I would take a book of hymns and sing with her, and she would know all the words of the old songs, For Mabel, these were not merely exercises in memory. She would often stop in mid-hymn and make a brief comment about lyrics she considered particularly relevant to her own situation. Listen to this. Tom said, I never heard her speak of loneliness or pain, except in the stress she placed on certain lines in certain hymns. One hectic week, Tom asked himself the question, What does Mabel have to think about, hour after hour, day after day, and week after week, not even able to know if it's day or night, 
So he went and asked her, Mabel, what do you think about when you lie here? Her response, I think about my Jesus. Tom said he sat there thinking about the difficulty of even thinking about Jesus for five minutes. And then he asked, what do you think about Jesus? She replied slowly and deliberately, and Tom wrote it down. Mabel said, I think about how good he's been to me. He's been awfully good to me in my life. You know, I'm one of those kind who's mostly satisfied. Lots of folks would think I'm kind of old-fashioned, but I don't care. I'd rather have Jesus. He's all the world to me. And then Mabel began to sing an old hymn, Jesus is all the world to me, my life, my joy, my all. He is my strength from day to day. Without him, I would fall. When I am sad, to him I go. No other one can cheer me so. When I am sad, he makes me glad. He's my friend. Still the words of Tom. This is not fiction. Incredible as it may seem, a human being really lived like this. I know. I knew her. How could she do it? Seconds ticked, and minutes crawled, and so did days and weeks and months, and years of pain without human company and without an explanation of why it was all happening, and she lay there and sang hymns. How could she do it? Lying there in the bed, unable to move, unable to see, unable to hear, unable to talk to anyone. Mabel died to self, and she lived for Christ. This is John 6. That's what Christ wanted then, and that's what he wants now. Faith receives the gifts that God offers us. Faith believes in the promises of God. Faith accepts God's work of salvation as a gift. Our work is to believe that this promise of salvation is true for us. Jesus once said, For what profit is it to man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Follow Christ for life. Follow Christ because of love, knowing that you can trust Him when the storms of life hit. Return to the Word is a listener-supported ministry. And truthfully, it is people like you, those who listen each week, that God uses to help us meet the expense of a ministry dedicated to reaching people for the gospel of Christ and the teaching of God's Word. And so I want to take a moment to thank those that support the work, even those that give $5 a month or $10 a month, because those smaller donations, they add up. And we thank you, because it keeps the programs free of charge so that others may learn of God's amazing grace. If you'd like to help us out, you can find out more at returntotheword.com. Return to the Word Ministries is committed to teaching the full counsel of God's Word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more about our ministry, please visit returntotheword.com. Return to the Word is a faith ministry. This means we freely distribute the teaching of the Word of God over the air and online. We do this without charge. If you feel led to support the ministry with a donation to help cover these costs, you may do so on our website, returntotheword.com, or by mailing a donation to Return to the Word, P.O. Box 879259, Wasilla, Alaska, 99687. 
Thanks for listening, and we pray that the Word of God will be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. Join us next time for another edition of Return to the Word.